Hey, I'm John Harwood, host of CNBC's Speakeasy podcast. In this episode, a conversation with Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland who's become an unlikely focus of presidential campaign speculation. In an Annapolis bar near his statehouse office, I talked with Hogan about the example his father set in supporting the impeachment of fellow Republican Richard Nixon, his concerns about Donald Trump, and the chance he'll challenge the president in 2020 primaries. I can't start the interview without taking note of the fight that you had uh, with cancer beginning in your first year in office. How are you doing right now? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, I've been cancer free now for a couple of years and feeling healthier than ever. I didn't quite get all my hair back ever, but other than that, uh, I'm feeling great. That's so fantastic. Thank you. Thank well, you. to good health. Thank you. Sorry I spilled your beer. What do you see happening in Washington to your party and to your country? I'm concerned about the Republican Party. I'm concerned about the country. I'm concerned about both parties, quite frankly, and the kind of broken politics of, of today. It's the thing I'm most frustrated about, and I think many Americans are concerned about. It's this anger and divisiveness on both sides mm -hmm. where people don't really seem to care as much about fixing problems. Well, let's talk about the president for a minute. You saw the other day the president, having seen a bipartisan agreement in Congress, signing it, but then going and declaring a national emergency under circumstances that you yourself have said right. is not an emergency. Well, I thought it was the entire thing was uh, mishandled from the beginning. But the most recent iteration of the, you know, this declaration of emergency is a mistake. It's not what the Constitution had in mind. I don't believe he should be declaring uh, using those emergency powers. Just look at the precedent it sets. I mean, for all, so if you're a, even if you're a hardcore supporter of the president who says, we want to build a wall, think about this. What if the next president who comes in, let's say it's a, a far left Democratic president who says, I think climate change is an emergency. I'm going to skip Congress and I'm going to declare a state of emergency to enact the Green New Deal. You know, well, who's to stop him? I'm going to step back a little bit. Do you see a straight line between the the Nixon Republican Party and the Trump Republican Party? I don't think so. I mean, I think uh, people are trying to draw the parallel because of the uh, talk of impeachment, but I, I don't know that there's many similarities between, I mean, uh, Nixon was really focused on opening up trade and working with foreign nations and, and uh, you know, opening up discussions with China and uh, it's sort of the opposite of some of the things that are going on now. There were some cultural differences at the time, but look, I'm all for finding a way to, to reach a broader number of people and trying to find a way to bring people together. I'm, my concern is about the party now is that we're focused on a smaller and smaller shrinking base. I'm not sure the Republican Party can continue to be winning national elections if we can't win the women vote, we can't appeal to any minorities, and if we're you know, constantly shrinking and arguing about every single being divisive issues. The reason maybe why you're talking to me today, there are people talking to me about how did you do so well in a blue state and how do you do uh, these things in that state when we can't do it in other places and we can't get women to vote for us and we can't get uh, minorities to even consider us. And I think the party needs to find a better way to reach more people on more things and to find consensus without abandoning principles, standing up for the important things that the party has stood for on economic growth, on job creation, on you know tax cuts, on you know without just getting to a smaller and smaller base where if you don't agree with us on 100% of these issues, 
we're, you're, you're an outcast and an enemy and we don't want you, which seems to be some of what's going on today. Mike Pence went to the Munich Security Conference, praised Trump, and was met with silence from our allies. Yeah. What does it tell you about where the Trump administration has taken the United States in terms of our place in the world? Well, it's, uh, it's definitely concerning. America is not in the same position of leading that it once was, and, that's, and that some of the issues that were, some of the positions we're taking on trade and on our relations with other countries are not helpful. And uh, so I think that's a, that's a healthy debate that we need to have. There's no question about it. That Munich conference was paying tribute to John McCain. You had John McCain's speechwriter, Mark Salter, work on your second inaugural. You had Jeb Bush, of course, whose father served with your father yeah. uh, at your second inaugural. What message were you trying to send to the Republican Party, to the president? But these are just guys that I admire, you know, so I grew up knowing and uh, respecting President Bush, H.W. Uh, Bush, and uh, he served in Congress with my dad. I went to his funeral, which is where I, I saw Jeb, and we were, uh, you know, he did, I thought he did a great job as governor of Florida. He's somebody I respect. Uh, McCain I've always admired because he was a guy, he, he, he always put uh, his country ahead of himself or his party, you know, throughout his career. Does President Trump do that? Well, I'm not sure he always does, and one of the things I probably was most angry with or most frustrated with Donald Trump about before he was president was were the comments about John McCain not being a war hero when the guy, you know, sacrificed his life and spent all the time in a prisoner of war camp, stayed there when he could have gotten out. Now, as you know, a lot of people took the presence of Jeb, the invo involvement of Salter, your invocation of your dad at the inaugural yeah. as a sign that you're considering running for president uh, in the Republican primary against President Trump. I've been listening to a lot of people who've been trying to encourage me. I have not been really giving it a whole lot of personal thought. You haven't told those people no. I didn't say no. I didn't say under no circumstances would I never do it. And there is a difference. I just got sworn in a month ago. There are more things I want to get done. Uh, nobody's won a successfully challenged a sitting president in their primary since 1884, and I don't want to just run around the country and put my family and, um, and, and everybody through that kind of an effort for no reason. Um, now, if things change in the future, if the president weekend, if I really thought that it was important to the country or the party, maybe later I'd be willing to consider it. But you are concerned about this president, who you did not endorse. When I disagree with the policy or when I think something is happening that is wrong, I, I'm not afraid to stand up and say so, and that probably puts me in a different category than many Republicans who I think sometimes feel the way I do, but they won't say anything about it. Well, to that point, I talked to a couple of Republican members of Congress over the weekend, and one of them I was talking to about things the president had said about the border wall, which wasn't true, and I was asking, yeah. do you agree with that? And, he, and his answer was, well, you can say that, but I can't say well, that. I, I, talk I hear to, a lot of that, actually. I, I talk, <laughs> I hey, talk, you say it. I can't say it. Yeah. <laughs> I talk to Republican and Democratic governors on a regular basis. And I can tell you, without naming names, that there are a number of my colleagues that have shared with me privately that they're very concerned about a lot of things, but they won't speak up and they won't say anything. And they may be concerned about in a red, red, red state, they're going to be primaried or challenged or attacked by the president on Twitter or, you know, the base is going to get angry. And they'll quietly say, I agreed with what you said, or I agreed with the, you know, what you did, uh, I just can't say it. <laughs> yeah, so, but I, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not running for re-election. I'm term limited. Mm -hmm. I'm in a very blue state uh, that uh, the president lost by 29 points. I have no reason to not tell people exactly what I think. There are some people making the argument, Bill Kristol among them, I know he's talked to you and some others, that it's important, even if the, a primary challenger can't win, it's important as a matter of principle that the Republican Party have someone run reflecting the kind of Republican Party they think ought to exist. I have to take into consideration my state and does it make sense to go running around the country to make a point mm -hmm. or to do something for the greater good that then takes me away from my day job. But I wouldn't just go out on some fool's errand chasing at windmills, you know, on, on a suicide mission for no reason. But if the reason was to make a point about the Republican Party, even if you didn't win, you would not be willing to do that? That's, you know, it's funny, um, somebody made the case the other day, and I won't tell you who, but they said, what would your dad do? <laughs> you know, that's a, that was, now that's a low blow, you can't be pulling that one on me. You know, the, what, what would be the right thing to do for the, for the, for the country and the party? And that's, that's something that would require a lot more you know, thought whether that makes sense or not. I, I'm not ruling anything out. Do you think if you had the 27, uh, your 26 fellow Republican governors in this room, that most of them would say, go Larry, go? No, I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of them are very strong supporters of the president and they're in very red states. And they certainly, on your camera, none of them would say that. If we were having uh, beers and no one was listening, yeah, probably half of them might say it's worth a shot. You and I are the same age. How come you look so much better? <laughs> the summer of 74, when Watergate was reaching a crescendo, we had graduated from high school. Right. I was following Watergate developments very closely. My dad was senior editor at the Washington Post, involved in the story. Right. You were involved for a, a different and more intimate reason. What do you remember about that time for your dad? I remember it really well. And I talk about it often because, you know, I have such respect for my father at a amazing influence on my life. But he had a, a really big role in that, in that impeachment proceeding as a member of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, he made the only, he was the very first Republican to come out for the president's impeachment and was the only Republican in the entire Congress to vote for all three articles of impeachment. I remember it well, uh, number one, because it was a huge national and international story at the time. Um, but number two, because I, I know talking with my dad, even though I was a kid just graduated from high school, as you were, I know what a difficult time it was for him to go through that decision because he had supported the president. He was a Republican who thought the president had done a good job on, particularly on foreign policy and China. And now I'm a Republican. Party loyalty and personal affection and precedents of the past must fall, I think, before the arbiter of men's action, the law itself. No man, not even the President of the United States, is above the law. He was an FBI agent mm -hmm. and a Georgetown-trained uh, lawyer who, after seeing all the evidence, came to the conclusion that, you know, he had been involved in the cover-up and, and, you know, that he felt that he was guilty of impeachable offenses. It's impossible for me to condone or ignore the long train of abuses to which he has subjected the presidency and the people of this country. And it was a difficult decision for my dad. I'll Were you in Washington when he gave that speech? I wasn't, but you know, I, I watched the, the tapes of the whole thing, and I still have watched it fairly recently. It's been on a couple of television shows, actually. It's an incredible... I watched uh, it last night. It was it, pretty powerful. The president, when this whole idea was suggested to him, 
didn't in righteous indignation rise up and say, get out of here, you're in the office of the President of the United States, there's an obstruction of justice going on. Someone's trying to buy the silence of a witness. But my president didn't do that. He sat there and he worked and worked to try to cover this thing up so it wouldn't come to light. He, he was nearly in tears and he was sort of pounded his fist on that committee table and he said, but my president didn't do that. He covered it up and he was guilty. It was a uh, you know, very traumatic kind of thing for him to do, to go against the president that he had supported. And he consistently tried to cover up the evidence and obstruct justice. And as much as it pains me to say it, he should be impeached and removed from office. He paid a price for it. He paid a price. And he knew he was going to. He said, this is going to cost me friends and supporters and, and probably my political career. But, and, and frankly, the party was mad. His colleagues in Congress were mad. The White House was furious. And at the time, many Republicans saw him as, you know, uh, why are you going against our president? Now, decades later, he has kind of a special place in history, and, and a lot of people who, even the ones at the time who might have been upset with him, think he did the right thing. Your dad, as you noted, was an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. When you hear the president attacking the FBI as a corrupt institution, does that strike you as someone who has been unfairly targeted by a corrupt institution, or someone who is very concerned about what a legitimate investigation is going to find? Well, look, I, I can't read the president's mind or, or, or try to uh, opine. And I don't know what the president was thinking or why he says or does certain things. I, I, and I don't know all the facts of the case. But I do, I, I do believe that the FBI is a proud organization. I'm, I'm very hopeful that the FBI investigation is going to be fair and maybe take a look at the facts. Do look, you have no, any no man is above the law, not even the president of the United States. They need to get to the facts and the truth. I don't want an unfair investigation that's just trying to undermine the president, but I don't want the president stopping a, a, an investigation either. But you have no reason to believe or to think that that is an unfair, corrupt investigation. I certainly don't have any reason to think it. Let me ask you about a new player in the investigations of the president, and that's the Democratic Congress. Yeah. A couple of the key players in that Congress are members of the Maryland delegation, who I imagine you know well. Sure. Elijah Cummings, the oversight chairman, today put out some information about an investigation of the provision of uh, nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. So mm -hmm. he's going to look into that. Do you have confidence in the integrity and fair-mindedness of Elijah Cummings? Well, I happen to have a lot of respect for Elijah Cummings, and I'm hoping that he will be fair. But again, as I've been saying throughout the whole discussion, mm -hmm. I'm concerned about letting partisan politics mm -hmm. skew um, how we look, the prism through which we look at these things. I want everything to be fair and above board. The um, Democratic leadership in the House has said we should not impeach the president for political reasons or we should not avoid impeachment for political reasons because we fear a backlash. You ran against Denny Hoyer. He's the uh, House Majority Leader. Do you have confidence in his integrity and fair-mindedness? Well, look, I, I, I would like to think that all of the people in Congress are, have integrity and are fair-minded. Right, but this I, is somebody you from know. I know them. I, I find them to be you know, decent, honest, you know, fair-minded people. I also know that they're, they're partisan members of their party, mm -hmm. and uh, I want to make sure they keep that partisanship in check. And I'm hopeful that they will. What did you think of the talk that we've heard and was repeated by Andy McCabe, the former acting FBI director, that raised the issue of 
the 25th Amendment, whether or not the president right. uh, was acting rationally, was capable of fulfilling his duties. Well, I know Rod Rosenstein very well. I have a lot of respect for him. I don't know McCabe, and I don't know what, was, what he said or didn't say or how he meant it. Uh, so it's hard for me to opine on that subject. I know that the McCabe, the former deputy in the FBI, is a disgruntled guy who left, and he doesn't like the president much. So I, I think you have to take everything with a grain of salt and just step back and say what really happened. We don't know. Let's do you, find out. Do you have confidence in Rod Rosenstein's integrity and fair-mindedness? I do. I know him from many years of being the U.S. attorney in Maryland. He was appointed by President Bush. He's the only U.S. attorney in the entire country that was kept by President Obama and by President Trump until he got elevated to Deputy Attorney General of the United States. You're going to Iowa pretty soon. What, yeah. are, you, what are you going to do out there? It's uh, a National like Governors it? Association event, and as the uh, co-chair, I'm required to be there. I'll be out there with Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, and Steve Bullock, who's the chairman. And it's going to be focused on jobs, and with, we have a couple-day seminar. So it's not, uh, I won't be hitting all 99 counties and going to every diner and, and looking like You're a presidential campaign. You're doing a little campaign. politics out there, too. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see some folks and have a few meetings and looking forward to being in Iowa, I'm sure. Tell me when you envision coming to a conclusion one way or the other about this idea that we've been talking about. Look, I, again, I don't, uh, I don't have any kind of timeline because I'm not considering it, but you know, I think the filing deadlines for, say, New Hampshire are sometime in the late fall. Mm -hmm. it, it, today it might not make any sense, but who knows? where we're going to be in two months or six months from now. All bets are off. We don't have any idea. Is part of your thinking the, uh, what the Mueller report shows and how think, people react to that? I think everybody's looking to see what, if anything, comes out of that. And I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not, I don't have access to the information. If something really alarming, if indictments come out of there, if it leads to impeachment, I mean, this, this, things are a lot different than they are today. Well, that's it for this episode of Speakeasy. Thanks for listening. Speakeasy is produced by Mary Catherine Wellens and Pat Anastasi. Editing by Jeff Dills. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a comment. We really appreciate your feedback. Talk soon.